Nantes, Brittany, 1343. It was a dreary day, but most days had been dreary of late. For two years, the region on the western coast of modern-day France had been ravaged by war, a power bid between the French noble house of Blouin and the English house of Montfort. But today was especially somber. In the middle of the town square, residents gathered and stared in shock. Hoisted on a pike was a decapitated head. The head belonged to Olivier de Clisson, a nobleman who fought for the French House of Louin. But the King of France believed that de Clisson had turned traitor, and traitors were executed. Among the crowd was a woman and her five children. It was Olivier's wife, Jeanne. She stoically refused to shed a tear. Instead, her eyes burned with rage as she gazed upon her husband's bloody severed head. With a deep breath, Jeanne turned to her children. She told them that their father had been a good and innocent man, betrayed for his loyalty. Jeanne knew that tears wouldn't ease her pain, but something else might. Revenge. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season of Dictators, we're going to see with the tyrant captains that flourished in the golden age of piracy. For the back half of this special season, we're changing our focus to a section of pirate history that is all too often neglected. Female pirates. Last week, we dove into the lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Bonnie and Reed were arguably the most infamous lady pirates during the Golden Age. Their ruthlessness proved that they were even more fierce than the men they sailed with. This week, we'll take a step even further back into history to chronicle some little-known but wildly successful women pirates before Bonnie and Reed. We'll discuss the legendary reigns of Jeanne de Clisson, Saida Alhura, and Grace O'Malley. We'll have all that and more coming up. Anne Bonny and Mary Reed have earned a reputation as history's two most infamous female pirates. Though their reign of terror was brief, it was memorable. Even to the bitter end, they proved that they were as bloodthirsty as any of the men they sailed with. And they weren't the only ones. As long as there has been sea trade, there have been pirates. And since the dawn of piracy, there have been women in its bloody history. One of the earliest known female pirates was Teuta. She was the queen of an indigenous group located in the Balkans. In the early 200s BCE, she went to war with the Roman Republic, and the Mediterranean Sea was her battlefield. Moving forward a few thousand years, women warriors featured prominently in the ocean attacks of the Norse, Danes, and Swedes. Known as shield maidens, these women fought side by side with the men on Viking raids. Shield maidens such as Princess Sela, Visna, and Vibjorg terrorized medieval Europe, raiding fertile coastlines from the sea. Although their names are scarcely mentioned alongside the men in Norse chronicles, the mere fact that they're inscribed at all among the male warriors gives us a glimpse of their impact. 
But it wasn't until the 14th century that a lady pirate from northern France made a name for herself like no woman before her. Her name was Jeanne de Clisson, the Lioness of Brittany. For Jeanne de Clisson, piracy was all about revenge. Sure, there was plenty of loot to keep her crew happy, but her cause was to bring as much pain to the men who brought her pain, the men who killed her husband. Jeanne de Clisson was born around the year 1300 in Western France. Little is known about Jeanne's early life, except that she was born into a wealthy, noble family. Considering her social standing, many historians speculate that she received a decent education. However, as the daughter of medieval nobles, she likely kept mostly to the castle grounds. As Jeanne grew older, social norms dictated that she be married off as soon as possible. So, when she was 12 years old, she married Geoffrey de Chateaubriand, a Breton nobleman. Over the next few years, Jean gave birth to two children. However, tragedy struck in 1326, when Geoffrey died. For the next four years, Jeanne and her two children seemingly disappeared from the record. But in 1330, she reappeared when she married Olivier de Clisson, an even wealthier and more influential Breton nobleman. By most accounts, the marriage between Jeanne and Olivier was a happy one. Sources differ as to whether or not they actually loved one another, or if it was simply a partnership born of social expectations. Regardless, the couple started a family of their own with five children. Jeanne now had a brood of seven. For about the next 15 years, she quietly raised her family. Unfortunately, happiness rarely lasted in the Middle Ages. Power struggles were a constant in Europe, and Jeanne's family was about to be caught up in a war. Her husband Olivier was a loyal Frenchman. When the English attacked Brittany, Olivier was always there to mount a defense, either by land or sea. And in that time, he became friends with Charles de Blois, a French nobleman from the powerful House of Blois. However, trouble arrived in 1341. That year, the Duke of Brittany died without an heir, paving the way for a power dispute over his throne. On one side were the French with Charles de Blouin. On the other was an Englishman named John de Montfort. The ensuing conflict was known as the War of Breton Succession. Olivier, of course, sided with his friend de Blois and fought on his behalf. However, about a year into the war, de Blois began to suspect that Olivier had defected to England. There isn't any evidence to support the accusation. Regardless, de Blois convinced the king that Olivier had turned on them, and the two hatched a plan to take the traitor down. In 1343, Olivier traveled to France to attend a tournament. But the moment he crossed the border, he was immediately arrested and sent to Paris. In a swift trial, Olivier was convicted of treason and executed. Adding insult to injury, French King Philip VI put Olivier's head on a pike and sent it to Nantes, the capital of Brittany, a message of what happens to traitors. The moment Jeanne learned of her husband's death, she immediately vowed revenge. She couldn't believe, after all his years of loyalty to France, that his own country would turn its back on him. 
According to some sources, the first thing she did was travel to Nantes and force her children to gaze upon their father's head. She wanted them to learn a simple lesson. Life was brutal and required a hard heart. But above all, she wanted them to be prepared for more death. Jeanne knew she wouldn't be able to fight this battle on her own. Sources differ on how exactly she managed to raise money, perhaps by selling off her land, possessions, or even her body. But within a few months, she had the funds to build a fleet. It isn't entirely clear why she chose to take her war to the sea as opposed to fighting by land. Having been raised among the nobility, she may have known that disrupting sea trade would hurt the French king the most. To that end, she purchased a fleet of three ships, a score of experienced sailors, and a cache of cutlasses and axes. With vengeance in her heart and promises of wealth, she and her men made for the English Channel and began terrorizing French merchant vessels. Jeanne quickly earned a reputation as a brutal cutthroat. Unlike pirates we've discussed in the past, Jeanne didn't invite her prisoners to join her crew. Instead, her M.O. was simple. Slaughter all the Frenchmen but one, leaving a single witness to tell the tale. It was a successful tactic that pirates like Blackbeard would adopt centuries later. Most terrifying of all, if Jeanne discovered that one of her captives was French nobility, she lobbed off their head personally. As her reputation grew, Jeanne earned a nickname that struck fear into the hearts of French sailors the Lioness of Brittany. The Lioness wanted French ships to know that she was hunting them down. Her husband's death came as a surprise, but theirs would not. She didn't hide. In fact, she painted her ships black and dyed her sails bright red. Her pirate armada became known as the Black Fleet. Unfortunately, little is known about the power dynamic on board Jeanne's ships. Considering her panache for beheadings, it's likely that no one ever challenged her authority out of fear. But her control may also have been due to Jeanne's success in leading her men to riches. Much of the cargo she stole was possibly sold to the English forces in Brittany who needed the supplies during the war. It's likely the English paid her handsomely, which kept her men happy. However, despite an unprecedented 13-year career, Jeanne knew she couldn't stay out to sea forever. Her rage had subsided with the bloodshed. In 1356, she abruptly ended her vendetta and retired from piracy. Not long after, she remarried, this time to an English officer. Some have speculated that husband number three was the reason why Jeanne retired from piracy. While this is possible, others say she was simply tired of the rough life at sea. Regardless of her reasons for retiring, Jeanne and her new husband returned to Brittany, settling down in a castle in the town of Ennebaum. Just a few years later, Jeanne de Clisson died around the age of 59. After her death, the Lioness of Brittany, a woman who led one of the longest and most ruthless pirate careers in history, became a legend in French folklore. Jeanne de Clisson wasn't the only woman to be driven to piracy for revenge. In the Mediterranean, for example, Saida al-Hura, the Queen of Tetuan, used piracy to hurt Queen Isabella I of Castile, a competing female dictator. For Saida al-Hura, 
Piracy was the best way to make sure she was the only woman in power. Coming up, Saida Alhura strikes at a growing Spanish empire. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast Network. The Vatican is one of the most recognizable religious sites in the world, but it's also a powerful institution. Its unique history full of secrecy. This Easter, my show Conspiracy Theories looks deep into the church's past to uncover how it became what it is today. Starting April 5th, our new four-part miniseries, Mysteries of the Vatican, dives in to examine some of the most prominent conspiracy theories surrounding this mysterious organization. From the church's sordid rise to power, to prophetic visions, and even assassination attempts. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories, to hear Mysteries of the Vatican. New episodes air every Monday and Wednesday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. For nearly 800 years, Christians and Muslims battled over the Iberian Peninsula. By the 1400s, only one region remained in Muslim control, Granada. At the end of the century, in 1492, the Christians finally succeeded in taking Granada, and the victory was all thanks to the ruthless Queen Isabella I of Castile. But her victory created a new enemy, a woman who would grow into an equally ruthless queen. But the consequences of the Christian victory were devastating for the Muslim people living in Granada. The few rights they were given were eventually taken away, and they were forced to convert. Before long, many fled to North Africa to avoid persecution. Among them was Saida Alhura. As with all of the pirate leaders we discussed this season, Saida Alhura's early life is something of a mystery. Saida Alhura isn't even her real name. It's an honorific that, according to journalist Tom Verdi, roughly translates to an independent noble lady. Whatever her real name was, she was born around 1485 into a somewhat wealthy and influential family who allegedly were descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. Saida was only seven years old when Queen Isabella conquered Granada and Muslims began to flee into North Africa. Her family eventually landed in the town of Shifshawan, located in present-day Morocco. The town quickly transformed into a home for Muslim and Jewish refugees. Saida came of age while living in diaspora. Even though she grew up among the city's elite, that didn't mean she was shielded away from seeing what exile had done to her people. And with each passing year, she grew to despise what the Spanish had done. Thanks to her family's status, Saida received a first-class education. She became fluent in several languages, including Portuguese and Castilian, and studied theology. It was evident, even at such a young age, that Saida was smarter than most. One of her teachers even proclaimed that she would, quote, rise to high rank. But like Jeanne de Clisson, a privileged upbringing as a woman of nobility meant that Saida was trapped within the era's societal norms, including an arranged marriage. In 1510, when she was 15 or 16 years old, she married Abu Hassan al-Mandari, governor of Tetuan. 
Tetuan was a city-state about 40 miles north of Shefshawan. As a port located along the Mediterranean, it became another haven for Muslim refugees, and Al-Mandari was determined to make them prosperous. Part of Al-Mandari's plan was to allow his new bride to have a voice in the city-state's politics. While it's unclear what specific role she played, we do know that she was accepted amongst her male peers. Scholar Hasna Lebadi notes that Saida was trusted by her male relatives. She knew what needed to be done under different circumstances, and these are the kinds of qualities that would have made her a leader. While Saida was building a reputation as a formidable and wise figure, she and her husband transformed Tetuan into a metropolitan city. They forged alliances with other leaders, including the powerful Sultan of Morocco. Not only was this the beginning of a unified Morocco, it was also the beginning of a future relationship between the Sultan and Saida. The goodwill Saida built among the men proved to be key in her own bid for power. Sometime around 1515, her husband suddenly died. In the wake of his death, Saida named herself Tetuan's prefect, or the city's chief officer. Shortly after that, she was proclaimed governor, giving her power not just within the city's walls, but in the region surrounding it. As governor, Saida sought new ways to continue to build Tetuan. And she never forgot why Tetuan needed to be built up at all. Her people had already been powerful once, until their expulsion. The Spanish were the root of their problems, and Saida decided she was going to return the favor. Given the strategic coastal location of Tetuan, she realized the best way to take on Spanish forces was to turn to piracy. In our first episode on Henry Every, we discussed the Barbary pirates, also known as Corsairs. Their ruthless kidnappings sent shivers down the spines of Europeans and helped shape Henry Every into the Pirate King. 200 years before Every, Saida Alhura used the Barbary Corsairs to make herself a pirate queen. In the early 1500s, the two most infamous and successful Barbary pirates were the Barbarossa brothers, Oruch Reis and Hyradin. The brothers were highly respected among the Muslim community along the North African coast, not just because they battled against their Christian enemies, but also because Oruch Reis was known to give Muslim refugees safe passage out of Granada. To that end, the brothers hated the Spanish for the same reason Saida hated them. So when word reached Oruch Reis that Saida wanted to talk, his interest was piqued. History has lost the details of when and where the two met. However, we do know the outcome. A powerful pirate alliance was born. For both parties, the chance to get rich at the expense of Spanish Christians was too good to pass up. For the next 15 to 20 years, the Barbary pirates attacked, raided, and pillaged Spanish and Portuguese merchant ships and settlements. During these raids, the pirates captured prisoners and Saida used them to negotiate ransom deals. Unlike Jeanne du Clisson, Saida Alhura never actually sailed with the pirate crews, at least that we know. Rather, it seems likely that she controlled the pirates similarly to how Jean Lafitte did centuries later. Her power earned her a reputation among the Spanish and Portuguese. Historian Herman Vasquez Chamorro claims that the Portuguese 
prayed for God to allow them to see Saida hanged from a ship's mast. But while Spain and Portugal cursed her name, Saida laughed all the way to the bank. With the money her pirate navy brought in, she was able to build up the wealth and power of Tetuan. Of course, Saida didn't see her actions as piracy. She was merely defending her people, giving back what had been stolen from them. The Muslims would never forget what had happened to them in Granada, and they saw Saida as their champion. For roughly 20 years, Saida ruled the Mediterranean Sea, and she grew more and more powerful with each passing year. And with that massive power came suitors looking to solidify alliances. In 1541, when Saida was in her mid-50s, her ally, the Sultan of Morocco, proposed marriage. Saida said yes, but on one condition. He had to come to her. The Sultan didn't hesitate. For the first time in Moroccan history, the Sultan left the capital of Fez to marry. Either the Sultan was head over heels in love with Saida, or he greatly respected her power. Unfortunately, not everyone held the same respect, including her new family. And despite years of making calculated moves that led to her success, Saida's decision to marry the Sultan proved to be her undoing. A year after the marriage, her son-in-law abruptly overthrew her and usurped her power. Like so many sagas passed down through the years, the specific details were mostly lost. No one knows how such a powerful leader fell so easily, or why neither her husband nor her pirates came to her aid. Sadly, all we know was that after losing the throne she built, Saida Alhura returned to her hometown of Shifshawan. She remained there in peace for the next 20 years until she died. However, while Saida Alhura slowly faded into obscurity, Another woman was in the midst of starting her own pirate career. And although she wouldn't obtain the kind of power Saida had during her reign, this lady pirate became such a thorn in the side of England that her story would become an Irish legend. She had many names, but she was best known as Grace O'Malley, the Queen of Irish Piracy. Coming up, Grace O'Malley goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Queen Elizabeth I. Now, back to the story. Outside of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, there is probably no lady pirate who was as famous as Grace O'Malley. For half a century, she wreaked havoc on the seas around the British Isles, refusing to back down until she was in her 70s. And in the process, she cemented her legacy as the Pirate Queen of Ireland. Grace O'Malley was born around 1530 into a wealthy fishing family. Her father, Dudara, was a powerful clan chieftain along the western Irish coast. Not only did Dudara have the fish market cornered, he was also said to be an experienced raider among competing clans. Traditionally, a young girl was expected to follow in the footsteps of her mother, mostly to stay indoors and raise the family. But almost right out of the gate, Grace realized she wanted to be like her father, a warrior and seafarer. One legend recounts how as a toddler, Grace got into a fight with a ferocious group of eagles that were attacking the family's livestock. Although she was banged and bruised, she was triumphant in killing and scaring away the birds. 
Another legend recounts how the precocious Grace was told that she had to wait to go to sea until she got older. But Grace refused to wait, so she chopped off her hair, disguised herself as a boy, and snuck on to her father's boat. Whether or not there is a hint of truth to any of these stories, what does appear to be true is that Grace O'Malley's destiny involved fighting on the seas. Like Jeanne de Clisson and Saida Alhura, Grace was married off for the sake of political alliances. In 1546, when Grace was 16, she married Donal O'Flaherty, heir to the O'Flaherty clan. Together, they had three children. However, Donal wasn't the wisest of clan leaders. Nicknamed Donal of the Battles, he enjoyed brawling with rival clans. Most of the resources, especially food, went with him and his fighters. So the constant battles left his people destitute and starving. Grace wasn't going to stand aside and watch this happen without fighting for her people. While Donal was away, Grace became the de facto chieftain and did whatever was necessary to provide for the clan. This routine continued for nearly two decades of marriage. But sometime around 1564, Donal was in the midst of a feud with the Joyce clan over a disputed castle. During a skirmish, Donal was killed. When word reached Grace, she set out to exact her revenge. She led the O'Flaherty clan into battle and reclaimed the castle. During the battle, she fought valiantly and ferociously, cementing her reputation as a strong leader. Unfortunately, Irish law barred Grace from taking Donal's place as clan chieftain, so one of Donal's cousins took the throne instead. But Grace refused to simply go back to life at home. She had tasted glory in battle, and her ability to lead the clan through crisis had earned her plenty of goodwill among the men. So with a fleet of galley boats and a crew of 200 loyal O'Flaherty men, Grace set out to do what she always wanted spend the rest of her days seeking adventure on the sea. Surprisingly, Grace and her fleet didn't target rival clans. Instead, she decided to use her knowledge of the treacherous Irish coast to attack the country's oldest enemy, England. At the time, England was gradually beginning to conquer parts of Ireland. The English proved to be far more devastating to the Irish than their small feuds between clans and they were also a more lucrative target for pirates. For those reasons, Grace's crew attacked British merchant and military ships all around the coast of Ireland. But the raids painted a huge target on Grace's back, and soon the English were scouring the Irish Sea looking for her. Realizing she would need some political protection, Grace remarried to a man named Richard Burke, an heir to a powerful clan and owner of a large fleet of vessels. However, just because she was married again, it didn't mean she was done sailing, nor fighting. Legend has it that a year after her marriage, Grace was returning from a trading expedition when her ship was attacked by Algerian corsairs. While her crew fought them off, Grace was below deck, nursing her newborn son, Toby. However, she could tell that the corsairs were winning. Frustrated and angry, she put the baby aside, grabbed a firearm, and ran up to the deck. Grace aimed the gun at the Corsair captain and allegedly shouted, Take this from unconsecrated hands. Then she pulled the trigger. 
With the death of the captain, the tide of the battle changed and Grace's men triumphed. Afterward, Grace returned below deck to finish nursing Toby as though nothing had happened. Yet, despite Grace's best efforts to disrupt the English presence in Ireland, the English military was a force to be reckoned with. One by one, Irish clans fell in line and submitted to English rule. But Grace still refused. In 1574, she found herself in chains. But after 18 months, she somehow finagled her way out of prison and was back to sea. She promised to retire from piracy as a means to escape the hangman's noose, but with her fingers crossed behind her back. By 1583, the English were tired of chasing down Grace O'Malley. That year, Sir Richard Bingham was appointed the English governor of Connacht province in Western Ireland. Connacht was the province where Grace's husband, Richard Burke, held his land and wealth. Unfortunately for Grace, her husband died that same year Bingham was appointed, and Bingham made it his personal mission to go after Grace. Naturally, as a first step, Bingham arrested her, but she was quickly saved by a neighboring clan leader. In retaliation, Bingham took away her castle and livestock. Next, Bingham captured two of Grace's sons, and sadly, he then murdered her eldest son, Owen. Bingham claimed Owen died naturally in custody, but regardless, the death of her son sparked Grace to lead an all-out rebellion against the English invaders. For roughly 10 years, Grace and her men sporadically battled against Bingham. Unfortunately, Bingham was relentless. During each insurrection, he continued to capture as many of Grace's people as possible and set fire to her lands. Finally, in 1592, after her son Toby instigated an uprising against Bingham, the Englishman managed to raid Grace's home base, capturing her entire fleet. Miraculously, the 62-year-old Grace managed to escape, but she left her home with absolutely nothing. Even her son Toby was captured and imprisoned. With nowhere to go and nothing left but her wits and a bit of audacity, Grace had to take desperate measures to survive. In 1593, she asked for help from the most powerful person in the land, Queen Elizabeth I. For 30 years, Elizabeth I had received reports about the English campaigns in Ireland, and one name always caught her attention, Grace O'Malley. Despite Grace's war against the English, Elizabeth was fascinated by her. The value of a strong female leader in a male-centric world wasn't lost upon the queen. So when she received a letter from Grace pledging her ships to the English crown in exchange for land and her family's freedom, Elizabeth's curiosity was piqued. The queen actually sent Grace a response. But word of the correspondence between the queen and the pirate reached Governor Bingham. Furious that Grace would appeal to the highest authority, he decided to charge Toby with treason, which carried a sentence of death. Grace had little time to waste. Her son's life was on the line. Risking arrest herself, she journeyed to London in July of 1593 and asked for an audience with the Queen face to face. No record of this unprecedented meeting has survived, but various rumors have arisen about what occurred. 
One story claims they had to communicate in Latin because Grace didn't speak English and Elizabeth didn't speak Gaelic. Details aside, the result of the meeting favored Grace. Elizabeth granted everything she asked for, and on September 6, 1593, Elizabeth sent Bingham a letter ordering him to free Grace's son, Toby. An enraged Bingham followed his queen's orders to some extent. Although he freed Toby and returned Grace's ships, Bingham installed troops on her land and aboard her galleys as a means to keep Grace honest. However, at the end of 1595, Bingham was recalled as governor, allowing Grace to return to piracy once more. For the next six years, she continued to sail both as a pirate and friend to the English. According to historian Gail Selinger and author W. Thomas Smith Jr., during this period, she switched up her tactics. Instead of plundering goods, she only extorted the ships. But in 1601, at the age of 71, Grace finally realized that she was becoming too old for a life at sea. She left her fleet to Toby and retired to a castle in her home county. In 1603, Grace O'Malley finally died. As we've mentioned before, more often than not, when we think of a pirate, we think of a man loaded with jewelry, missing teeth, waving a cutlass around. Rarely do we imagine women fighting alongside them. However, there is one other cliche that comes to mind when we think of pirates. Geography. More often than not, our minds immediately head to the Caribbean or the waters around Europe with the Vikings and Corsairs. But piracy wasn't just limited to Europe and the Americas. On the other side of the world, China and Japan were also faced with sea bandits disrupting the trade along their shores. In the early 1800s, one Chinese pirate captain led an army of over 70,000 sailors and soldiers. Her name was Ching Shi, and she was by far the most successful female pirate in world history. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll head east as we conclude our special pirate season with the life of Qing Shi, the woman who took on the Qing Dynasty, the Portuguese Empire, and the East India Trading Company. Among the many sources we used, we found Pirate Women by Laura Sook Duncombe extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>